Welcome to this week's episode of the Compass Equip Podcast. I am Pastor Hayden, and with me, as always, even on our off days, oftentimes, is Pastor Evan. Hi. At Compass Bible Church, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. Everything we do here at Compass, including this podcast, is to fulfill the mission of reaching, teaching, and training. Pastor Evan, we just uh, finished up our current series, Trials and Triumphs, with a sermon called The Miracles and the Message from Matthew 4, 23 through chapter 5, verse 2. Why don't you read that for us? Be my pleasure. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those who oppressed by those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Mm. All right, well, Pastor Hayden, uh, before we jump into the main focus of the sermon, I think it'd be helpful as a church to get that reminder that you shared with us that this is also repeated in Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. What is going on? Yeah, what Matthew is doing is he's creating a block of teaching, and he's proving in chapters 5 through 9 what Jesus' message was, showed his miracles and his works in conjunction with his message to prove the authenticity of the message. And so we have an inclusio. We have Matthew starting there in those few verses in 23 uh, and a little bit in 24, talking about how he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people and his fame spread throughout the region. You see that here in the text we're in this morning, but you also see it in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, when it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Well, this is a, it's a literary feature called an inclusio, which means it's really bookends, and it kind of it opens and it closes a section of, 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 of literature. And so we see that happening here because Matthew is clumping that message and saying, here is a clump that I want you to understand. And then he also transitions in in chapter 9 to a new clump of teaching, which talks a lot about the evangelistic efforts of Jesus and his disciples. And so verses or chapters 5 through 9 teach us about Jesus' teachings and his work. 5 through 7 are his teachings, 8 through 9 are his works. And that's just important for us to understand the literary makeup because the way that Matthew arranges the teachings and the life of Jesus are meant to teach us something about Jesus particularly. So it's good for us to understand that this is a block of teaching, even that Matthew uh, divides it that way. It's good for us. All right. Well, speaking of that, you might we will go into the what is included in the inclusio. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's your dad joke for the day. <laughs> that was, a good, that was uh, marginal at best. Yeah. That was like a <laughs> D plus. I get, okay. All that right. was a D plus. But all that to say, there's a whole chunk of stuff that we're going to get to, but there's still a main point to this section of verses. Yeah. So what was the main point to the message this Sunday morning? That the power of Jesus revealed through his miraculous acts ought to be sufficient proof for us to fully trust the authority of his message. It's pretty simple, but it is the summary of the summary of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. 
Okay, so now there's three points, and I have some questions that I have written yeah. down for this point. So point number one, Compass, was to make Jesus' message the main thing. Now, Pastor Hayden, how can we as Compass support the church's effort to make Jesus' message um, our focus as a church? Well, ask yourself the question, is Jesus' message the main focus in your life? Because if it's not the main focus in your life, how are you going to be able to help the church make it the focus of our congregation? And how does it look? What does it look like for the message to be throughout my life or the main focus of my life? I mean, do you plan your life around the message and mission of Jesus Christ to make disciples and proclaim the glory of salvation through Christ to the world? And in the process, also making disciples, making sure you're taking time to meet with people about the Bible, about their relationship with God in Christ, uh, time in your own life to grow in your own faith through your own prayer time and through your own quiet time and reading God's Word and sitting under biblical teaching on the weekends and being in biblical community? Or or do you just try to fit in things of God in the schedule that you've already given yourself throughout the week? I mean, we got to ask ourselves, are we making our schedule about Jesus or are we making our schedule about us and where Jesus can fit? I'll go ahead and let him have that space. And so the reality is, is all the space that we have is God's space, and we got to make every effort and every uh, in every way we can to make the message of Jesus the focus in our life. And collectively, we're going to make it the focus of our church. And of course, we're going to have good leaders, good pastors that are going to help us uh, instill that not only in our personal lives, but keep our church in a trajectory through the power of the Holy Spirit to make sure that our church maintains a focus on the gospel and that we don't swerve or sway into some other area of focus other than the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So an implication, Pastor Hayden, if mm-hmm. maybe I'm a mom at home raising the kids and all day long, or I'm a you know a husband that is just grinding out work, the way that I approach maybe my work or the way that I you know raise and disciple my children throughout the day is, okay, God, how can I glorify you in the way that I work today or the way that I raise my kids today, and how can I have an opportunity to look for opportunities to be able to talk to someone at work or with my kids about who Jesus is? Well, I mean, I think uh, this is a really easy and really good because what I think is helpful for you to understand is, number one, working is the stewardship of a faithful Christian, uh, particularly... Uh, even I think moms who are at home, or even if they work, they understand that their first stewardship is their home and their children. And so if you're a mom and you're you're exhausted and you're teaching your children to know the Lord, to love the Lord, uh, amen, you're doing the job. Like, that's what you're doing. Like, well, how do I make time to be teaching people about the Word of God? Well, ask yourself, are you teaching your children the Word of God? Uh Proverbs 6.20, my son, keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. I mean, you should be teaching your children. And if you're not teaching your children, I don't know how you're going to be teaching other people if you're not teaching your kiddos. So I think you should really see your ministry at home, teaching your children about the Lord's work as a primary disciple-making avenue for you as a mom. Uh, I mean, should, does that mean you'd never go and teach the gospel or share the gospel with anyone else? Well, of course not, but it has to start with your home. Uh, and husbands, you know, you're you're grinding out at work. Amen. Right? The Bible says you should work hard. You should be diligent. You shouldn't be the, a sluggard, right? I mean, you should be somebody who has a zeal for for working hard, and that is a stewardship, and that is part of being a good disciple. 
but your work should not become so central in your life that it uh, causes you to forsake the responsibilities of your home life, the responsibilities of making disciples. I mean, you should be able to work and make disciples. I mean, you work probably not alone, perhaps. Maybe you work with a team. Maybe you work with other people. Uh, make disciples as you are going. That's the word peripateo. As you're going, you see that all in Scripture. Uh, walk in the way of the Lord. Walk, keep in step with the Spirit. Peripateo. As you're going, that's even what the participle go means. As you are going, make disciples. Uh, and so it's. I'm not saying that drop everything you've ever done in your life and create an entirely new calendar. I'm saying, hey, what in your calendar, like your work, like your commitment to teach your children, like your commitment to have dinner around the table every evening, like your commitment uh, to be uh, sitting under good, godly, biblical teaching, how do you make sure all of those things are being used for the advancement of the gospel and for the uh, continuing discipleship of your home and in the circles of influence that you have? Awesome. All right, well, also one more question under point number one. How can we as a church guard our hearts against focusing on you know, preferences over our principles? Well, it is slaying your preferences in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, What's an example that you may can give us? Well, let me just, I can give you a personal thought on this, you know. You know, if you ask, is Compass Bible Church the church that I've, I've always had in my mind in my dreams? No, it's not. I mean, there are a lot of things that I would do differently at Compass, but those are my preferences. What I have to ask to myself is, is Compass Bible Church living as a biblically sound church? Are we being godly? Are we being biblical? If we are, then everything else is a preference. And so for me, it's like in my own life, I have to slay my preferences in in lieu of biblical principles. The church doesn't have to look like me or act like me or or, or fit my preferences in order for it to be godly. And so if it doesn't have to fit the pastor's preferences, it definitely doesn't need to fit anyone else's preferences. So we should all be able to put our preferences on the line to ensure that our church is staying focused. And even if what we want, which, you know, I don't think I've had a preference for this church that isn't a good preference, I think, you know. Uh, it isn't something that I, I think it's something that would add value to our church. But just because I think it adds value doesn't mean it's necessary for our church to remain faithful. But what is necessary for my church to remain faithful is to stay focused on the message of Jesus Christ. Amen. Speaking of focusing on the message, point number two is make Jesus's miracles about his message. Mm. So, uh, Pastor Hayden, you know, with uh, miracles, right. what do I do with Jesus's miracles today? Well, what we should do with Jesus's miracles, first and foremost, is praise God that he proved himself through his miraculous acts. And uh, I think with that, particularly in our lives today, we shouldn't expect a life of miraculous events. I mean, miracles are not the norm, which is why they're called miraculous. Like, I mean, if, if miracles were just the norm, they would be called the norm. Oh, yeah, that's just normative. Like, miracles, we, we need to understand, are even rare throughout the Bible. You look at the Bible. As you read most of biblical history, uh, there are no miracles performed. There's not a lot of miraculous activity throughout a lot of Scripture, uh, which sh doesn't minimize the importance of miracles. It just shows you how rare they are and why we can genuinely, truly call them miracles because they were miraculous they they stopped people in awe and reverence and fear of the lord because it was something that they never see you know if they saw natural law being broken all the time you'd have to question is natural law really being broken right now or do we not understand natural law and so we see the the lack of uh law uh 
laws being broken, that is natural laws being broken, uh, as a proof that when they were, man, that was it was a difference maker. And it was no difference in the time of Jesus. Jesus' miracles were an astounding proof of his message. And when they saw what Jesus did, they didn't say, meh, I saw that in the last week. You know, it's like well, they said, wow, it's truly this is the Son of God. All right. Well, another thing that, you know, Pastor Hayden, we told our life group leaders, and I don't mind mentioning here, is just kind of defining miracles yeah. just for a short minute. Um, miracles actually described in the Bible, the words used for miracle are signs, wonders, mighty deeds. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times we think of miracles as a suspension of, you know, natural law or mm-hmm. space and time. And that is partially true, but yeah. that's not all the miracles that the right. Bible describes. And so a helpful theologian defined it this way, a miracle, you can define it as an extraordinary manifestation of God's covenant lordship. It's a, a mouthful. It's a mouthful, but simple. But if you think about it, it's, it is truly helpful because, you know, compass, sometimes we even use natural law. You know, that in that those words right there, just it's a secular mindset that we make God independent from science. In mm-hmm. reality, the scientific founders during the um, 1400s, the 1500s, and 1600s, they were actually, you can you know, see quotes of them saying, I'm doing this to worship God because we're not deists, we're theists. And so a deist believes that God created the world and st- you know t- took a step back, and every once in a while he'll step in. That's not the world, and unfortunately, that's what we think of miracles. Like, oh, God's inactive. Oh, now he's active. No, God is always active. The Bible mm-hmm. describes him. He's contr- his, by his word, the world is being held together. So, and the implication is, God is controlling the atoms of the universe right now. And the study of science really is just how he normally behaves. Right. And a miraculous manifestation of God's covenant lordship is he's always the already lord over the universe right now. Just an extraordinary manifestation is this is how he acted differently. In that moment. In that moment, like parting the Red Sea or raising a child right. from the dead. Which I like the parting the Red Sea that you quoted even to the life group leaders because there is not actually in the text, any suspension of natural law because God didn't suspend gravity to separate the waters. He used a strong wind. A strong wind. A very strong wind. Right, which it is very, I mean, I know it's, it's extraordinarily extraordinary. strong. It's extraordinary, but it's not suspending natural law, which I, I think those things are helpful, particularly when it comes to how we define miracles and you know, should we expect miracles in today's time? And there's a couple of resources I can give you on that. But, you know, I don't think that you should be expecting miracles because the idea of miracles is they are unexpected, extraordinary manifestations of God's covenant lordship. And there's a time coming where that is going to be a little bit normative towards the end. Yeah, and there, and there will become a time. And so it's like, you know, even cessationists like us, it's like, well, there will be a time where there will be miracles. And I think that's a good biblical attitude to have towards miracles. It's like, okay, you know, throughout most of, redemptive history. You don't have miracles. There are pockets of miracles throughout Scripture. Uh, At the end of the apostolic age, you see a ceasing of miracles. The early church fathers who were discipled by the apostles uh, unanimously claimed that miracles have ceased. Uh, There will be a time close to the return of Christ, or or perhaps even during the tribulation, that these miracles will... uh, will begin again and you know so we're not we're not going to say that individuals will never be able to do miracles again but what we are saying is man be very careful in our culture in our world where people want attention people want to take away from from the majesty of god and try to claim 
deity, try to claim the small God theology, try to claim that they have the special juice, a special ability. Uh, and we got to be really, really uh, skeptical of those things. And we got to make sure, hey, are, are we making this about miracles? Are we making this about the message of Jesus Christ? Because I've watched, a, I've seen a lot of people claim prophecy, claim miracles. And you know what I never hear from them? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's even in my own uh, experience with uh, those claiming to do signs, wonders, and miracles. It was always about the signs and wonders and miracles. And we need to understand uh, unequivocally that Jesus made it about his message and his mission to reach lost people. And that should always be what we focus on. All right. And focusing on the message, point number three, to sit under trusted biblical teaching. Mm-hmm. All right, Pastor Hayden, how is we as a church, how can we do this well? How can we sit under biblical teaching well? Well, particularly, you need to start on the weekend services. You need to start by, you know, asking, hey, am I preparing to sit under biblical teaching or am I just trying to rush to church and I don't really think too much about it until that Sunday? You know, am I getting my kids ready the night before, at least getting their stuff out? Am I making sure I'm going to eat a breakfast before I get to church so I'm not hungry and my belly's not rumbling and I'm keep looking at the clock? Um, you know, am I grabbing a coffee from the coffee bar so I can make sure I can pay a little bit more attention? Am I? Uh, do I have my notes? Do I have my note sheet? Do I have my laptop? You know, am I? Do I have my pen? You know, am I? Am I ready to engage? You know, we want expository preaching, but but we also need to commit to expository listening to commit to saying I want to listen to this in the way that God meant for me to listen. When I come in to church on a Sunday, am I saying God has something to say to me and I want to make sure I hear it clearly and I can apply it well? And so there are some ways that you should sit under, at least initially when we talk about particularly the the weekend service, but you need to ask the same question, you know, am I going to life group and applying the questions on the back that come straight from the sermon and from scripture? You know, am I making sure that I am, I want to study the Bible at home, particularly, I've been saying that a lot, particularly, because I specifically by using things like the TAN method, then, always, now. I think that's a really good, helpful, uh, it's the same way we learn in seminary how to interpret the Bible, just that's a very simplified way to describe it, but, uh, you know, am I using good biblical hermeneutics so I know, hey, what I'm getting is what the author meant for me to get, and not, you know, maybe what I would like it to say, or maybe where I don't know what it says, but I got to pick something. Use good hermeneutics. I mean, these are ways to sit under trusted biblical teaching by understanding how you get trusted teaching from Scripture. All right. Well, speaking of application, Pastor Hayden, we have several application questions this week. Um, what guidance would you give us, or maybe a particular question, maybe like question number three? I like question three. I actually like question four, too. I think question three is great because it kind of helps you walk through uh, in four questions, in four short questions, the applications and the, uh, I mean, and, and the nature of Jesus's miracles. So I think that's going to be really helpful for you guys to take those step by step. Question four is great, too. I love how are you encouraged when you realize that Jesus's miracles were a small sample of the glory that will be fully revealed at the consummation of the kingdom of God to really think through how these miracles ought to point us to a time in the future when the consummation, that means when the fullness of the kingdom is revealed to us, how amazing that's going to be. You know, if if the microcosm of that kingdom was shown in the miracles of Jesus, how much more is there in store when it comes to the consummation of that kingdom and as we get to glory in it in the presence of God? We should really be thinking about that more in our lives. 
Awesome. Well, Pastor Hayden, you mentioned there's a couple resources. Uh, what are those resources that would be helpful for a church? A couple resources. One, expository listening. It's a book in the bookstore. It can help you know, hey, well, how can I be a better listener when it comes to sitting under the teaching of God's Word? And then Norman Geisler also has a good book out called Signs and Wonders. It kind of helps you uh, uh, kind of work through signs and wonders in the Bible, what's going on in our cultures today, particularly with... Uh, groups of people who are claiming miracles or claiming some miraculous work um, and even help you maybe able to see false prophets and false uh, you know false work works of miracle throughout our culture uh, it's just a good book I think Norman Geisler is a very trusted uh, speaker on many of those topics uh, somebody that I respect highly I think it'd be a good uh, book for you to look at as well and very charitable and very charitable that's why I like him he's just a very good charitable uh, writer, speaker, and uh, godly man. All right, we are jumping into this week's Daily Bible Reading Spotlight. Pastor Evan, what are we looking over this week? We are looking over Mark chapter 7 to chapter 9. All right, let's get to it. I'll get to it. Well, pa- uh, Pastor Hayden, well, Compass, just to let you know, as a reminder, the helpful resources to have to earn the bookstore, a good study Bible, the ESV or John MacArthur study Bible, or the Bible Knowledge Commentary is a good way to start. Or if you want to go on Amazon and buy these two resources, Four Portraits, One Jesus by Mark Strauss, or The Cradle, The Cross, The Crown by several authors, one of them being Andres Kostenberger, those resources would be helpful for you as you study the New Testament with us this year. All right, well, Compass, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, and let's give you an overview of what you're going to read this week so that you are prepared when you are reading each day kind of knowing what to expect. As a reminder, Mark 1 through 8 roughly is answering the question, who is Jesus? And then the rest of it, Mark 8 through the rest of the uh, gospel, Mark 16, is kind of answering the question, what is Jesus doing? But also, who is a true follower? Who is a disciple of Jesus? And as a reminder, if you flip back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the purpose of this book is laid out right here that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So this is the whole point of Mark. And Mark, as we talked about last week, is trying to prove this through the actions of Jesus Christ because he's, he is most likely writing to a Gentile audience. And I can maybe make the case that it was a Roman audience where Peter may have been imprisoned and Mark was writing his eyewitness account. All right, now... Peter's ch- eyewitness account, just thank to you. clarify. Peter's eyewitness account. Thank you very much. All right, Mark chapter 7, we start off with Jesus versus the traditions of man, how man twisted God's law and created their own law. And essentially, Jesus takes that on. The Pharisees were upset that he was not holding to the traditions of the elders. And then Jesus kind of gets right back at them by quoting Isaiah, saying, You uh, hypocrites fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah. The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men, saying they're elevating man over God. And so Jesus, in verse 8 of Mark 7 says this, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And Jesus is really revealing those Pharisees who people would have said, oh, these are the people of God, saying you are actually not the people of God. And what they're doing here is they are taking their own 
opinions and their own thoughts, and they're making them more important because he gives a case study there in 9 through 13 where God's Word says you need to honor your father and your mother. Uh, and they are making exceptions to say, hey, if, but if you do this thing or this thing is happening or you decide to commit to this way of life, then you don't have to honor your father and mother because uh, you're making a different decision according to the traditions of man. Uh, and he uses that case study to say that Jesus is saying, you guys are subverting the authority of Scripture by making the authority of man more important. And he shows them how they do that and calls them out real good. Calls them out, and then he huddles his disciples up in verse 14 of chapter 7 and tells them to say, hear me, all of you, and understand this. He's really getting to the root issue, or you can say the heart issue. Because essentially what he points out to the Pharisees' teaching in, in verse tw- uh, verse 19, uh, sorry, verse 20, he says, what comes out of the person uh, is what defiles him. You know, they were so concerned about the law of Moses saying what defiles them, or touching dead animals or people with diseases. Things that happen on the outside. Things that happen on the outside. Hence, their rules, the tradition of men were so mm-hmm. concerned about washing of hands, all the outside. But Jesus is saying the law, the entire time, is really pointing to a heart issue. Yep. And he's attacking the heart and he lists out in verse 21 to 22 all these sins and these wicked things that defile a person because they come from within in verse 23. And so he reveals what the heart of the Pharisees are, but then he reveals in the next case study the heart of a particular Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman. That's a fancy word to say, a Canaanite woman, comes to Jesus in, in verse... I'd definitely be, rather be able to be called Syrophoenician. Syrophoenician. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> in verse 24, he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. You're actually going to notice a lot this week that he goes to a lot of Gentile regions, mm. and he doesn't want anyone to know, so you're going to notice that, because it's not time for the Gentiles to be called. He's trying to call Israel first. You actually get that in uh, Luke and Matthew's account of this passage. But he's in the Gentile region, doesn't want people to know, not because he's ashamed, but it's because of timing. He's waiting for, he's calling Israel to repent right now, and then eventually called the Gentiles to repent repent as well. But a Syrophoenician woman, also known as a Canaanite woman, a Gentile comes to Jesus begging him to heal his daughter. And Jesus kind of says some funny words and says that the children be fed first, talking about Israel. Um, and uh, for it's not right for the children's bread to be thrown to the dogs. And so she answered him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is verses 27 to 28. And so right here, Mark, or Peter, you know, Peter's witness account through Mark, um, well, to Mark, I should say, is trying to reveal the heart of this woman. This woman trusts in Christ to heal her daughter and is turning to the only person that could save her. And so... Right, the Gentiles who historically weren't God-fearers. Especially a Canaanite who... Who was a half-blood. Who, not even a half-blood, they were the ones that the Jews kicked out when the conquest. Right. And so Jesus oh, says to sorry, her, sorry, Canaanite. Not the Samaritans. I, I the Samaritans. No, the Canaanites. It's Can- okay. Canaanites. The Canaanite, those are the people of Israel who they replace in the promised land. Jesus says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Essentially, he's revealing that this woman's heart trusted God, unlike the Pharisees. And this should show us that even though that he makes the point in verse 27, uh, you know, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to a dog. He's talking about Israel and Gentiles. It still shows as you read this that the disciples even knew early on in Jesus' ministry that he really did care about all people, not just Israel. 
and that this woman's faith showed that there were people who would follow Jesus who were not Jews. Which goes right to, he returned from that region and went back to the Galilee region to the Decapolis. Again, so he is talking to Gentiles. And so he heals this Gentile, this person who is in verses 31 to 37, um, heals a man who had a speech impediment and was deaf. And so when Jesus healed him, he charged to, he charged him to tell no one. Why? Because again, it wasn't the time right now for the time of the Gentiles. It was the time for him to call Israel. And Jesus is just really proving again that he is the Messiah because the people in verse 37, he's like, he has done all these things, even the, the deaf hear and the mute speak, which in we know through Matthew, he's talking about Isaiah, but remember, this is most likely a Roman audience. They don't know really who Isaiah is, and hence why in verse 34, he says the word, I can't even say the word, Ephatha. 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 And so that is be opened. And so there's a clue right there that the audience is not necessarily Jewish, but Gentile, because Mark is trying to say here, he said this word, and this is what the word meant. Again, trying to emphasize the time for Israel is here, not for the Gentiles, Gentiles, but yet, however, he still loves all people. And then in chapter 8, we have the feeding of the 4,000. We already had the feeding of the 5,000 previously. Now he has the feeding of the 4,000. And who is Jesus? He's not only the Messiah, but also he's the one that has compassion. He has compassion on the crowd. And that is written in verse 2 of chapter 8. And so he feeds them, and if you notice in verse 8 of chapter 8, there is seven baskets full. As you remember in Matthew, um, this also this symbolizes the world because there's 12 baskets left over when he fed the 5,000 in the region of Israel. Now he's in the region of the Gentiles, and there's seven baskets full, and there's seven days of creation of the world. So he, God, who is God? Jesus, he is the God of the world. And then in verse uh, 12, as we talked about even miracles, right? He says in verse 12, chapter 8, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The Pharisees were trying to test him and ask for a sign. And that just should show us a little bit of the place of signs and miracles in the Gospels to Jesus to say, I'm going to give you no signs. I'm going to give you no miracles. And why does he do it? Because he already proved it. He has already proved it. And, but he always has the door open for the message of the Gospel that they continually rejected. And even though it's the region, he went back to the region where the uh, Israelites, the Jews left and the leaders, the Pharisees came and were testing him, showing that the Gentiles seek Jesus, and but Israel, God's people, rejected Jesus, demanding a sign, even though he gave him plenty of signs. And so he went to the other side, kind of proving another passage, Romans 1, that God gives people what they want. So if you don't want me, fine, I'll give you more of your sin. That's what Romans 1 talks about. And so then, starting in verse 14 of chapter 8, Jesus talks about being wary of the teaching of the Pharisees. And they disciples don't really get it. Um, they're asking about what the bread they, uh, why do they have bread? And Jesus is like, what, what do you, why are your hearts hardened? Verse 17, are your, verse 18, have your eyes cannot see, ears cannot hear? Do you not remember? Kind of showing the foolishness of the disciples. And the point Jesus is trying to draw, which he reveals later, is that they're not focusing on God's kingdom, which he eventually will rebuke Peter for later in this chapter. So decide who is Jesus? Jesus is the one that's bringing the kingdom. But what is a disciple? A disciple focuses not on this life focusing on bread right now, but they're focusing first on the kingdom of God, knowing that, and Matthew 6 says, that all, God will provide all that they need. All right, then he continues in verse 22 of chapter 8 to Bethsaida, again, another Gentile region. 
And this is where, um, actually, they continue on in verse 27 after they go to Bethsaida to the region of Caesarea Philippi, another Gentile region. And this is where Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? So for the next previous eight chapters, we understand who Jesus is. People say that he's John the Baptist. People say that he's Elijah or one of the prophets. But here at the midpoint of the book, Peter says, you are the Christ. Peter gets it correctly because Jesus, you know, Mark, excuse me, is trying to prove Jesus is the son of God. And now the disciples are beginning to get it except for right in the few verses after. In verse 31, he began, this is the beginning, he began to teach them what? That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests Israel and be killed and after three days rise again. So this is the beginning of him teaching about the resurrection, which is very important because of the ending of Mark 16, which we'll get to. Just notice right here, the resurrection is clearly beginning to be taught here. And of course, Peter, the one who says, you are the Christ, takes the Christ, the Messiah aside, and begins to rebuke the Messiah. And why might he do that? Because he's focusing on the world. He's focusing on the wrong point of Jesus' first coming. That's right. And he, you know, being, you know, Peter, uh, is thinking that him being the Christ means that he's going to... Conquer Rome. Conquer Rome. And so he can't die. If he dies, he can't conquer Rome. And so he, thinking that he knows the plan of God for the Christ, uh, says... Get behind me, Satan. That's Jesus. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. Right. And this is the problem with the Pharisees, too. You know, every person, every human, they think God is going to do things this particular way. And God's saying, no, I'm doing it this way. I'm going to reveal it to you in Scripture how I'm going to do it. So get behind me because Peter's focus and our focus and beyond th- things, God should do it this way. Why? Are you thinking of God's way or your way? In God's way, what a disciple looks like is in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, verse 34, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Essentially, let him die to himself and follow me. Can't make it about yourself if you're going to follow Christ. That's right. And then in chapter, and then it goes right into chapter 9. This kind of thought continues on in the first verse in chapter 9. And he says, Truly there will be some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's no. a can be a troubling verse, isn't it? It's a troubling verse, and so what? Why I, is it troubling though? It's not troubling because it's not good. Because it's like, what is he talking about? Yeah, I mean, obviously those people have died, and we're still here. Right, the kingdom of God hasn't been manifested in its consummate glory. Because it's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about? He's talking about it's going to come with power. They're going to see the power of the kingdom of God at hand, and guess what happens? Verse two. The transfiguration is this fulfillment of verse 1. This transfiguration, they go on a high mountain, and Jesus is truly revealed. The Jesus of the coming kingdom is revealed. He describes in him, in verse 3, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as as no one on earth could bleach them. Mm -hmm. So the kingdom of God is going to look like this, that the ruler, the true king, Christ himself, Jesus himself, looks like this. And this is how he's going to come in bringing the kingdom of God. And not only that, after the transfiguration, after Jesus is uh, glorified and in uh, after the resurrection, they also see it again, the kingdom coming in power and glory at Pentecost. And so Jesus does reveal himself in the kingdom and the power therein uh, throughout the life of the apostles. So then he tells the disciples, 
in verse 9 to not to, to tell anyone until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Again, the resurrection clearly um, presented, but they just don't get it. Uh, verse 10, they just don't understand what that you know, rising from the dead would mean, which again is important for the ending of Mark 16, which we'll get to in two weeks. And so in verse 13, he tells you, uh, he reveals that the Elijah, because they're wondering, hey, I thought Elijah was supposed to come first. And he reveals... Right, because Elijah was with them in the, at, the, uh, at the transfiguration. And by the way, before we move on, and so Elijah, he says, Elijah was here, and it was John the Baptist. Right. Because he identified... And we talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about that a few weeks in ago. In sermon. And there's a reason why Elijah and Moses are there, because Elijah represented which, kind, which people? The prophets. And then Moses represented what? The law. Well, if you have an Old Testament... Now, this is actually how you're supposed to organize it, the law and the prophets and the writings. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. So that's a little tidbit for there. There you go. And so then Mark 9 continues uh, with verse 14 with Jesus healing a boy with an unclean spirit. And the focus of this is verse 29. So if you want to jump down to verse 29. The disciples can't do it. He's actually like Jesus gets frustrated, and he says this kind of uh, this kind of thing cannot be driven out except by prayer. And so, essentially, the question now begins: Okay, who is Jesus? To what does a disciple look like? Well, a disciple is one who prays because they're not depending on their own power, which the disciples were doing. They're depending on a greater power, which is God. And then verse 30 to 32, Jesus again foretells his death and resurrection. Um, but then the disciples didn't understand it because they were they didn't ask him because they were afraid. And so what does a disciple do? They ask, even though they may fear God, they still ask God and seek after God. And then uh, getting close to wrapping things up in chapter 9, they go to Capernaum, again, a Gentile area. And of course, the disciples being the disciples are talking about who is the greatest and Jesus reveals they wanted to make it about themselves. Make it about themselves. And Jesus reveals a disciple is one who is last. The person who's gonna be the greatest must be the servant of all. Yep. And so a disciple is the greatest servant. And then in verse thirty-eight to forty-one, there's people who are casting out demons in, in Jesus' name. Like, should we, should we stop them? He's like, No, don't stop them. You know, instead, in verse 21, for truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water verse to... Verse 41. Verse 41, excuse me. Whoever gives a cup of water to drink because of Christ will no, uh, by no means lose his reward. Essentially, a disciple serves other disciples. They celebrate what other disciples are doing. So we're not jealous and wondering, oh, that church is growing faster than ours. No, we celebrate what they're doing. And they say, hey, church, how can we serve you? So disciples serve one another. And then they end in verses 42 through verse 50 by talking about the temptation to sin and the woes for those who do and cause other people. And so essentially the main point you need to take away this is that disciples take sin seriously. Why? Because God takes it seriously. He took it seriously in Eden when he you know, he cursed the ground, he cursed the serpent, and casted man out of his presence. But he took it seriously because he took man's place on the cross and he takes it seriously because he's bringing a redeemed eternity. And so we must, as disciples, as he takes sin seriously, must also take sin seriously and not lightly. God will purify, verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Think about that, everyone. And that wraps up our daily Bible reading spotlight this week. All right, quickly, announcements, Compass Bible Church prayer night on March 19th from 5 to 6.30. Let's pack out the auditorium and pray to the Lord corporately. We have our men's breakfast March 11th at 9 a.m. 
want to invite you and remind you to invite all the men you know to come to our men's breakfast to hear the Word of God being preached and community to be happening. Family Matters Conference, April 15th. We already have 118 people registered for this, so make sure you don't wait. We have a limited amount of spots and tickets available. April 15th from 9 a.m. to 1 uh, p.m., and we have guest speakers talking on parenting, marriage, finances, and conflict resolution, plus a breakout session for our teens. You can register today for $10 per person from 6th grade on up till 99, 105, and you can register at compasshillcountry.org. Compass Kids is available for those who register their kids' birth through fifth grade. Their registration is free. But we do need people to serve, so if you're interested in serving to put this conference on, we would love to hear from you. But until then, Compass, until next time, we're grateful for you. We look forward to seeing all that God is going to do through our church and through your life.